everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and I am joined here again today by the wonderful Journey and Nicole. This week, Nicole is going to be telling us all about the case of the Nembard twins, and Journey is going to be starting our conversation around the faults of forensic sciences. I would also like to note that there is a dis- listener's discretion advised, as we do have mentions of murder and sexual assault throughout this episode. So with that being said... Nicole, would you like to get us started on the case of the Nembard twins? Yeah, of course. Um, I will say, though, once I started researching this case, I realized that there wasn't as much information on this case, which, like, does suck. But it also kind of comes into play and becomes relevant when it comes to Journey's part and our discussion around, like, faults in science. Um So there's that. And I've also sprinkled in um, a couple other cases related to twins and forensics. Um, Of course, I do want to focus on the Nembard twins. And so this is Orlando and Brandon Nembard. And so the order of events, um, basically, it's very like start to finish. This is what happened. And that's it. But to start off with the Nembar twins, uh, in the late hours of February 12th, 2011, in Chandler, Arizona, a fight had broken out outside of a club called Leonardo's Da Vinci Code, um, which I guess was like a hip-hop kind of rap club, I guess. Um, And it's estimated that roughly 20 people were crowded around watching the events unfold. And the next thing everything everyone knew um, shots rang out and 19 year old Sir Xavier Brooks was shot in the abdomen and witnesses recounted that Brooks had his hands up and was backing away from the gunman when the, when he was shot and killed. Um, And that's kind of all there is for the details of this crime. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Like it, it's just not a great, uh, case forensically or like there's not much for investigators to work with because right. that was it um a month after brooks's death orlando nembard um, was actually arrested by police and charged with second degree murder for the death of brooks the thing that makes this case kind of tricky though is that no murder weapon was recovered there was no forensic evidence recovered at all and to top it all off um orlando has an identical twin brother. Um, and this is Brandon who was also present at the time of the shooting, hanging around in that same crowd. Perfect. So yeah, there was no DNA evidence to use, or at least to tie at least one of the brothers to the crime. Um, they only had eyewitness testimonies and visual identification. And that's how police conducted their investigation. Um, Things get tricky when you have twins in the same space, though, outside of a nightclub. I assume drinks may have been involved. Like, it's just not a very sound investigation. Yeah, well, I feel like Um, even if it wasn't identical twins, like, witnesses are not exactly that reliable outside of a bar. Yeah, I agree. Especially after hearing a gunshot. 
Yeah. 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 Oh, man. There's um, construction outside of our house, and someone dropped, like, a piece of lumber or something, and I was in the shower, and it sounded like a gunshot, and it scared me so bad. I was terrified. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, to, like, add on to all of those problems, too, um, the witnesses were identifying both brothers as being the shooter. So, several noted that Orlando was the shooter, and then... Many actually gave conflicting descriptions and said that Brandon was the one who shot Brooks. So their clothing seemed to have been a main factor in their identification or like the eyewitnesses trying to identify them. And this is tricky because testimonies were all over the place. And some described the shooter as wearing jeans, a white shirt, and a white beanie. Um, but one of the brothers, Brandon, better known as Blizzy, he apparently was wearing jeans, but a dark t-shirt. And then Orlando, who went by the name or the nickname Slick, apparently told police he was wearing jeans, a white shirt, but a black beanie rather than a white one. So like he had the shirt and the pants, but not the beanie. And then the other brother had the pants, but not the shirt and no beanie. Right. That's how their identification was made and how they said, Orlando, we're going to arrest you. I enjoy Um, their nicknames. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, I would love to know how they got these nicknames. Right? Blizzy and Slick. I know. Those are some nice flowing nicknames. (laughs) Kind of decent. (laughs) Um. But yeah, so while no murder weapon had been recovered, um, it's believed to have been a point... 380 caliber i don't know the proper way to say that it was a 0.380 caliber semi-automatic pistol um however you say that caliber that's what it would was. that be like a 30 a 38 38 caliber yeah i don't know how I they i think don't, it I don't would know be. how mm-hmm. on my very I'm, limited gun knowledge i think that's correct same. okay so then a 38 caliber semi-automatic pistol that's what they think caused it. Because no weapon, no gun has been found. But do they not um, have a bullet? That I don't know. Like, okay. there's literally the no information anywhere about all it. All right. Good stuff. And it's all news articles. And, like, you kind of have to take them with a grain of salt. I found an article written by one of the defense attorneys oh. who had, like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There was um, no no gun, no found did they like it's a nightclub is there not cameras you would think but there was no mention of cameras okay yeah so no cctv footage um you would also think maybe video footage from like cell phones this was 2011 so i feel like there were it was hip and like you had a <laughs> phone and it was cool to have a, a camera phone yeah um yeah, there was like the first iPhone back then. There was there was Blackberries. They could have had yeah. phones. Well, and yeah, lots of people would have like nothing. actual like cameras with them. Yeah, so there yeah. should be something. You would think. Mm-hmm. You would hope. <laughs> but <laughs> here we are, uh, twelve years later, and nothing. Um. So ultimately, the murder charges against Orlando were dropped um, as there was no concrete evidence linking him to the crime. And then bail was also reduced. It had been set at $500,000. And that was reduced to $10,000 after police realized there wasn't enough evidence 
um, to actually hold Orlando in jail for the murder. Jeez. Um, still kind of ballsy for putting it at 10000 if they have literally nothing linking him to the crime. Well, it's like 500000 to $10,000. Like, that's an insane drop. Yeah. That's ridiculous. But then also, like, I know you can post bail or sorry, post bond on a bail, which if I remember correctly, is only 10% of your bail. So oh. really, if he could post bond, he's getting out for like a, a grand at that point. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Brooks family was not happy about this. Yeah. Because they fair. were obviously like, one of them did it. Why are you releasing both kind of thing? Or at least yeah. dropping it so one of them could be easily released. Yeah. Um, and then in a press release, uh, Maricopa County attorney Bill Montgomery, he detailed that while there were eyewitness testimonies and evidence to suggest one of the twins was involved, not sure what evidence he was referring to aside from the eyewitness testimony, mm-hmm. um, prosecutors still couldn't move forward with the case. Right, really? So. Makes okay, sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, if you don't have – I mean, you're just – at that point, you would just be going to a trial. If there's a jury, you're trying to convince 12 jury members that 20 people all saw the same thing, that it was this person. Yeah. But all 20 can't agree that it was the same person. Well, it is a waste of taxpayers' money. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think they care about that, I will say. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. But yeah, They're probably just like, it's but a waste yes. of our time. There's no evidence. Yeah. We've got bigger fish to fry. Yeah, it was definitely like, it's it's not worth it. Whatever. We'll yeah. keep the case open. If we find anything, then we can continue with it. Yeah. Um. But I guess, like, friends of the brothers were saying that one of them had a tattoo, a very, like, pretty prominent neck tattoo the other one didn't and i guess that was being used to kind of identify them um take that with a grain of salt not all media articles talked about that but apparently that was a thing um so yeah the judge ended up deeming the case inconclusive and then both brothers were actually released and are currently free as of the last update i could find oh wow um yeah, and I couldn't really find much. Like, all of the articles I found were, like, 2011, or they were combined in, like, other twin cases um, from, like, 2018. And then I think the most recent one was 2021 that still – that mentioned the shooter still remained unknown. Um, wow. So as of 2021, at least, we still don't know who. That's crazy. Um, and – I'm kind of taking the no updates as a sign that nothing's progressed in that case. Cause you would think if you find more, you're going to let the public know. Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty, pretty certain that there hasn't been much progress um, since 2011, which is really unfortunate for the family of the um, victim of Brooks. Um, I find it very interesting that they didn't continue to press charges because yeah um, i think you kind of like from my point of view i think you got to look at it being like what can we charge him with yeah like i understand that yes there is a victim yes there is a dead 19 year old but looking at the case there's nothing to to show what killed them aside from a bullet hole yeah there's 
no DNA evidence. There's no footage. There's only the word of 20 people. Like, it's just a very circumstantial case. And I think in the sense of law, like, you can't do much with circumstance. I mean, they have. Uh, Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Many times in the past. I know. It Um, just feels like... Because these guys are black, so it feels like black men have been prosecuted for way less, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like that's yeah. Like oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With regards yeah. to the gun, because I know you said like they didn't even find the gun, mm-hmm. and I, I guess we don't know because there's so little information like publicly shared about this case. But like, was there like any search warrants conducted? Because I feel like unless either of the brothers like got rid of the gun which is also very likely if he shot someone with it then yeah. you would suspect that if they conducted like a search warrant then they'd probably find what they're looking for and if not that's more evidence towards like innocence for them but yeah i couldn't find anything that talked about a search warrant I wouldn't be surprised either way. Like, I would like to think that they would conduct and do their due diligence. Um, but with the information provided, I just, I can't positively confirm or deny that. Yeah. Um, but you would hope that they would search. You know what I mean? Like, I'm really giving them the benefit of the doubt <laughs> that they didn't just stop at, oh, 20 people said it was this guy. We'll charge him. Ah, shit we don't have any information on this guy gotta let him go like i'm hoping that's not what happened but i find it very interesting that there was no like they couldn't find the gun at all yeah yeah which like kind of brings back to what rebecca said like i don't know if they got rid of the gun i don't know if they even looked for the gun like i learned i don't know if i was 19 sorry go ahead um have you guys heard of like community guns no, Where I there's like, no. What are those? Okay, well, I, well, I learned it from Hawaii Five O, so take it with a grain of salt. It's basically where like you use this gun to commit a crime, and then you like immediately sell it, or like it goes back to this library, oh, and then someone else can okay. use it. So this gun has been used in so many different crimes, but no one can trace it back to the person who owns it. Oh, so they can't charge anyone with it because they don't know whose gun it is. Who committed it? So- I know we're off track a little bit now, but one, that is really interesting. But two, like, wouldn't the person who, because obviously there's no, like, it's not like a public library where you go take out a community gun. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't the person who legally owns the gun automatically be responsible for it because it's under their name? Or is that like only like a car ownership type thing you know um i don't know like I think if someone I'm... owns your car and drives drunk <laughs> then it's still your responsibility yeah i think i'm confusing two things because i think the library is with gangs like where gangs will have like a library of guns where they can like check a gun mm. out to commit a crime so it's linked to so many but like they still got it through nefarious means so it's not like it's registered and it traces yeah. back to like john doe or whatever and then with the right. community gun it just switches hands so often that they don't know mm. who originally owned it yeah. because they've never seen it. Yeah. I've heard of okay. cases like that where it's kind of like when you just pawn off a gun like mm-hmm. if I were to just kill someone not have it in my name though pawn off the gun now that's in someone else's hands and like it's I don't know you could probably trace it back to the time frame that that person owned the gun or like try and find records that way but no, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. I feel like that happens a lot more than we would like to think. Yeah, because that's the only thing that Especially I can think in of. Especially the States, unfortunately. Yeah. I think. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I just don't see any other reason why, like, how they wouldn't be able to find a gun. Yeah. Like, they're kind of hard things to hide. Like, I was going to say, like, I don't know. I honestly don't even don't know how the Nem- Nembard twins, how old the Nembard twins were. I would I would think that they're within 19 to 25, though. The victim was 19. I'm going to say they're around that age. Yeah. If I had a gun at that age, I would have absolutely no idea what to do with it. Let alone yeah. if I just had it and it was there. Couldn't tell you. If I shot a person with it, though, couldn't tell you what I'd, what I'd do. Yeah. Probably under my pillow and hope for the best. Like, <laughs> they're not yeah. going to find it there. This is like the tooth fairy. Hopefully the gun fairy yeah. comes and takes it away. <laughs> It'll just go away. It'll just be fine. I'll have a $20 <laughs> bill under my pillow. Yeah, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, like, I guess good for them if they actually managed to hide it. I don't know if they had someone they gave it to. Yeah, who knows? The twins, if you're listening to this, <laughs> let us know in confidence. I promise we won't tell anyone. Is there a statute of limitations on murder? Uh, I think it's on I, all crime, is it not? I think murder might be one of the few with no statute, but I very well could be wrong. Okay, because for some reason I, I mean, I'm just was, I thought it was 50 years, and then I was watching Hawaii Five O, and they said there wasn't a statute of limitations, but there was for robbery, which was six years. Okay, in, yeah, I'm just thinking of like all those historical cases of like cold cases in the 70s that like people were just charged and stuff. But mm-hmm. I mean, I guess like the 70s, part of them are still less than 50 years ago, so I guess it could be 50. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> A quick Google search, um, the Strategic Criminal Defense Calgary tells me that indictable offenses, so murder, sexual assault, and robbery, have no statutory limitation periods. Oh. Is that for Canada? That is for Canada. Interesting. Okay. Okay, So there's a little bit of a difference between Canada and the States then. It says these crimes can be prosecuted regardless of how much time has passed since the alleged offense date. Well, that's good to know. That is At least for Canada. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Long story short, I'm sure you would. they would still be charged if yeah. today they were like, oh, we found the gun. Who killed this man? Um, <laughs> they would be charged. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so kind of coming back to it, like I had mentioned earlier, like the Brooks family was not happy about the decrease in the bail time or the bail amount. <laughs> And I guess the victim's grandmother, um, her name was Barbara Jones, she had made a comment, something along the lines of, like, basically, just put them both in a room, they'll hash it out, and just they will decide which one of them has to do the time. Because she's like, obviously one of them did it. Yeah. But, like, neither of them are owning up to it, which, like, I get. If the law is working in your favor that you'll get away with murder, I can understand writing that out. But... <laughs> Um, yeah, she was just like, just put them both in a room and then you'll have your answer. That kind of don't know if they tried that though. I doubt they would listen to her. I don't think they feel like that's not a legal (laughs) tactic that they can use. Give them like the back medieval days, just give them both swords and say only one man survives. (laughs) Other survivor gets to go to jail. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like the, now, kind of like the background of their life, because I only found two sources that mentioned anything about their 
growing up or their life. Um, and that was that apparently the brothers moved from Yonkers, New York, which side note, love that it's called Yonkers. Mm -hmm. Didn't realize that was a real place. There's a title um, of the creator album named Yonkers. <laughs> really? Yeah. And it's after Yon Yonkers, New York. <laughs> no way. I thought it was like, um, some spoof off of like Yankee, like just a very New York thing. Oh. A Yankee turned into Yonker. That Anyways. makes sense. They moved from Yonkers to Phoenix, Arizona, and Phoenix is about a 30-minute drive to Chandler, Arizona, is where the shooting occurred. And I've come to learn um, that the world doesn't view distances in time frames. So let me do a quick conversion. Yeah, that's a very Canadian thing. Is like, oh, it's only yeah. a 30-minute drive. And people are like, well, how far is yeah. it? And they're like, 30 minutes. Like and they're like, that's drive. not a measurement of distance. <laughs> yes, Could it is. not tell you the kilometers in the slightest. Yeah. No. Well, it depends on like like what speed limit the road is. Yeah. Like the whole way could yeah. be 50 kilometers an hour, which obviously it's going to take more of the time than if you're on a yeah. highway going 110. Yeah, literally. Yeah. And if you're in the city, um, like how much traffic is there? Right? Yeah. I that was like the biggest um thing. So I have a coworker from South Africa and she Every time she was asking me where something was, I would go to say, like, oh, it's only like 30, 45 minutes away. She's like, okay, how far is this place <laughs> away? I'm like, I'm telling you, it's 30 minutes away. And she's like, no, 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 let's back up. And I'm like, okay. So I now have to Google and I'm more cognizant of it. But from Phoenix, Arizona to Chandler, Arizona, Google Maps is telling me in traffic, I guess there's rush hour at the moment, it's about – 37 minutes or 24.6 miles. Okay. 24.6 miles is 39.58 kilometers. That means nothing to my brain, but to those that <laughs> that means something. There, there you go. There's Same. your conversion. Just give me the time. I don't understand the kilometers. <laughs> yeah. Let me know how much time to book out of my day to get Literally. to it. And that's all I need. That's so wild. Um. So yeah, about uh, 40 kilometers, sure. Um, so quite close. Like you could take a bus there in like an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they moved there. Sure, that's where the shooting happened in Chandler. Um, and apparently, take this again, sources, who knows, um, Orlando apparently had faced charges in the past related to burglary and marijuana possession. Uh, four of these, though, were dismissed. I couldn't find the total amount. Um, and then apparently he did plead guilty to a marijuana violation and possession of stolen property. And then Brandon apparently doesn't appear to have any run-ins with the law and looks to have a clean criminal record. Hmm. Um Take that how, how you will when it comes to trying to figure out who commit the murder. Um, but both brothers were described as hanging out with the same kind of crowd. They all had the same friends. Um, so they were like pretty close to each other. It um, wasn't like one of them was a mastermind criminal and the other one like didn't went to university and did nothing with their life um, and was the golden child. But right. Yeah. Um, was Brooks known to them? Did you come across that any chance at that? Yeah. Because it feels like something that they would across. be like, 
oh, Brooks and Orlando and Brandon went back X number of years kind of thing, or it was like a stranger. No. I feel like my educated guess, based on the minimal resource there was, I think just something occurred outside of this nightclub. People got rowdy, a couple drinks in, some fists started to be thrown. Someone shows up with a gun to a fist fight and results in a 19 year old being killed right and also though that like he's 19 at a cl- i mean fake ids do exist but like isn't 21 the legal drinking age in the states like, yeah he- it is it generally I- is but i know there's and i have no idea if arizona is one of these states but there's a couple states that actually have exceptions to that oh, um okay. not even full states but like i know new orleans louisiana yeah. um has an exception and i only know that because i went there when i was 18 with my parents <laughs> and if i was with my parents and i was 18 years old then i could drink <laughs> i do recall that being something like if you are with a guardian in a public space over the age of 16 or something like that then there are some allowances i don't know how that is for the rest of the world but it does does remind me of that Okay, a quick Google search says that there are five states, Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, New Hampshire, and West Virginia, um, allow underage consumption of alcohol under limited circumstances, such as in the presence of parents for religious or medical purposes, or while in a class that requires tasting. Oh. A tasting class. That is, okay, that's so fun. I know it's probably related to culinary school, but... (laughs) That I was sounds thinking, like a great class. <laughs> well, because you can work in a like, bar and be underage, can you not? Yeah, you have to take like training though. At yeah, least in so Canada, maybe it's you this can. training. Like oh, okay. they go to mixology school or whatever, and they have to like taste their whatevers. That'd be cool. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, a great educated guess. Um, but yeah, that is unfortunately all I have about the Nimbard twins. And so I kind of wanted to shift to four different cases. They're not big. They're not huge. Like there were just cases I found that sounded interesting. So I thought I'd include them. Um, and to start are the Finn twins, Charles and George Finn. They served in World War II. Um, I don't know if they were together, but they did both serve, um, in the like U.S. Air Corps. And basically, long story short, they purchased an airplane from the Bakersfield School District. However, after they bought the plane, the government was like, hey, you can't actually purchase this plane. Um, We need the plane back. And because, like, the school district apparently just wasn't allowed to sell the plane. Um, Just a really quick side note. Why did a school district own a plane? (laughs) I'm assuming it's like an aviation school um i will be honest didn't look it up so we're gonna do that right (laughs) now i just i just hear school district and i assume primary to 12 and i'm like Mm -hmm. yeah that's weird (laughs) but (laughs) it could be flight school (laughs) i don't know about world war ii but currently it is a pre-kindergarten to eighth grade school district in bakersfield california weird what? So I am, yeah, can, I can't provide an answer on that one. I will say, did not do a lot of digging on these cases. That's okay. Long story short, school district owned an airplane. <laughs> they weren't allowed to sell. Bam. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe they weren't allowed to own the airplane to begin with. And then the government was like, 
what's going on? We now you can't sell it. <laughs> now you can't sell it. I don't know why you have it, but you can't sell it. Um, <laughs> so there was a plane and one of them just decided to fly it out into the Nevada desert and then hide it from the government. And I guess the government could not find a massive plane in this desert. They must have hit it like really good in a cave or something. Mm-hmm. No idea. Just it was hidden. But both refused to return the plane and ultimately um, like they tried charging them with it. But ultimately they were a federal grand jury decided against prosecuting the brothers um, since the witness that they had couldn't tell which twin it was that flew the plane and they had no plane as evidence and they had no other physical evidence to tie them with. Um, so these – Yes. What, like what was our plan? Yeah. Like you steal a plane and you hide it. You mm-hmm. can't fly that ever again. Okay, Unless so you I, fly under the radar. I was going <laughs> to say, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how planes work and I don't know how radars work. But you could, I feel like you could be kind of sneaky. Yeah, I think as long as you fly below a certain altitude, most trackers can't actually see the plane. I think. Also, it's funny you bring up this case because it's not like it's it's not related in the slightest, like the twins with this case. But did you guys just hear about in, I think it was South Carolina? Yeah, South Carolina, an F-35 military jet went missing. <laughs> oh, oh, I did hear that. I saw that. Yeah, I, did I not. thought it was fake, so I ignored it. Yeah, they did end up <laughs> it. Something happened. The pilot got ejected. The plane just kept going. They didn't yeah. know where it went. Um, they did end up finding it, but the plane crashed. Um, and just kind of for some scope of like what they just lost one of these planes is worth over 80 million dollars oh so that's not good (laughs) no do we know the circumstances which led to the pilot being ejected was he just like "Mm, let's see what happens from the articles i read they were ridiculously vague they basically just said something occurred and the pilot ended up being ejected and the plane kept going and now we don't know where it is oh <laughs> that's very okay. funny okay like how do maybe you the pilot lo- was in on it and tried hiding it he had it. that was his plan because it's like how do you yeah. just lose a whole plane just in the yeah. air and it's just gone right? right why isn't that still on the radar radar even without the pilot literally do they not have trackers it's 2023 there should be trackers on planes <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know. That's wild. But just briefly, too. Um, so I guess they bought uh, a surplus. So the idea of buying a plane, I will mention, was they wanted to start their own airline. So I guess they thought by buying this plane, it would like start that process so they bought a surplus it was a c46 twin engine transport couldn't tell you what that is but we're gonna google it and they bought it for twenty one thousand dollars um that's a lot of money for that time for that time yeah yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't spend that but it's like a um like it's a cool looking bullet type big plane kind of looks like a bomber but not a bomber 
Oh, I don't cool. know anything about planes. I recommend you look <laughs> it up. Um, we'll, we'll post a photo on our website of what it looks like so anyone listening can go check that out. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so those are the Finn twins. Now moving on to uh, Hassan and Abbas. The last name in that was like O. I don't know if that's actually um, their last name. Like O-H Hassan or just and- the letter O? No, just the letter O. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I just looked it up and it, it just... It's yeah, just the o. letter O. Hmm. Yeah. So not sure. Not not too sure about that. Um. But basically, again, too long, don't read. They are a set of twins that pulled off a... Well, are believed to have pulled off a jewelry heist on February 25th, 2009. They stole upwards of 5 million euros worth of watches and jewelry in um in Germany somewhere. Wow. They were caught on CCTV footage, so there was three of them, um, and a glove was left behind. Uh, I don't know why you how you would forget a glove but anyways that happened um so they took dna samples from the glove which led them to the brothers but it i hope you discuss this a little bit further journey in your part they couldn't tell which brother it was mm-hmm. um and they couldn't even tell if like both were even involved in the heist um or just one or the other interesting yeah um, both twins did have criminal records for theft and fraud. Unfortunately, the CCTV footage was absolutely useless as the faces were all covered. Um, and so both brothers were freed as they refused to cooperate and no other evidence was found. And the jewelry and watches are still missing. Really? Yeah. Wow. They have not Damn. recovered them. Yeah, that's crazy. Interesting. Okay, yeah. It's just so, like, upsetting that there's, like, actual video footage and DNA evidence and, like, nothing mm-hmm. can come from nothing. that. But yeah. it's also, like, I guess, I don't know. It's so tough because we've been so spoiled with TV shows where they're, like, we'll just, yeah. like, see how tall they Enhance are on the video. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. TV has ruined, like, any knowledge I have on just how much it like evidence they actually gather at a crime scene. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I think bones has been the one to ruin it for me with all of the technology they have too. And like what Angela can do with like the screens, like she'll take a crappy CCTV footage and then all of a sudden it's super like the enhanced. pixels enhanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like she's, yeah. And then like, you just solved a serial murder in two days. Wow. <laughs> that happens all the time. Right? Like, no. Here we are. One can birth- dream. Bones is so yeah. good. It's like a, it's like a pipe dream for every forensic scientist. <laughs> Literally. It really is. Yeah. Um, okay. Next, uh, next quick case are the twin foxes. They're known as they were born in 1857. Uh, get this. It's Albert Ebenezer Fox and Ebenezer Albert Fox are <laughs> the brothers. Okay, that is so, incredible. I have a um, <laughs> yes. They're not twins. It's just one person. <laughs> and he's like, no, you that's my think. brother Ebenezer. No, it's my brother Albert. Um, if there weren't photos of them side by side, I would 100% okay. back you up on that. That makes um, sense then. But yeah, there was documentation. Um 
But they basically used their twinness to their advantage as long as they could. They continuously had frequent run-ins with the law. They would commit robberies. And then they – wow, they survived by, like, poaching and stealing um, – <laughs> I literally was having a stroke when I wrote my notes, I think. Um, <laughs> what's the term for, like, uh, birds? Uh, starts with an F? No. Anyways, but, like, they just stole birds. They stole chickens and they stole farm stuff oh, foul? from the farm. Fowl. Fowl. Yes. Yeah. That's okay. the one. Um, so they would steal fowl from farms and live basically that way. Uh, so between the two of them, I guess the twins were convicted between 150 and 200 times throughout their lives. Wow. Oh but God. each time, because they would make sure neither of them, like both of them weren't at the scene at the same time, mm-hmm. they would just create this huge stink and demand compensation from authorities for convicting the wrong brother. So like one would be charged and he'd be like, no, you've got the wrong guy. I'm, suing you for this or like whatever they did back in the 1850s yeah um and then surprisingly though with advancements of forensics and technology they soon learned that fingerprints were different for twins unlike dna and at the time um and they could use fingerprint to identify the foxes when it came to the crimes wild i know and then lastly quickly too is jerome and tyrone cooper i will say um for any mother out there that is having twins maybe differentiate the names a little bit yeah but that's just not a the little fun. bit but like appa- <laughs> apparently i don't know if it was the fox twins one of the twins they had to like the parents literally tied ribbons around them to identify which one was which yeah that tracks I can't imagine trying to raise like babies just don't look like humans to begin with. But then um <laughs> um to try and like identify non-human looking humans and there's two of them, that just seems like a lot of work. I don't know, tying string seems smart. That's yeah, I would if do they that. are identical. Like you cannot yeah, tell like even probably exactly. as their parent, you're like I actually yeah. don't know who you are. Yeah. Unless mm-hmm. there was like some identifiable like birthmark or something. Yeah. I can't imagine doing that. I would be such a parent, like bad parent calling them the wrong child name. Yeah. Um, especially too, when you have names like um, Albert Ebenezer and Ebenezer Albert, like you're just, <laughs> well, it's a shoe in for a mistake. Maybe they did that so that if they did call them oh. the wrong name, it's like, no, I didn't. Your name is still Ebenezer. Just a lifetime of gaslighting. Literally. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and then they did that to the cops too. Oh, oh genius. Perfect. Uh, yeah. So Jerome and Tyrone Cooper, um, they, a 26 year old unnamed female had been physically and sexually assaulted while she was walking to her car in November, 1999. Semen samples originally didn't match anyone in their database. Um, no evidence like fingerprints were found. There were no witnesses because it was late at night. Um, and the victim was attacked from behind and couldn't provide a description of the attacker. Five years later though, a man serving time for a different sexual offense ended up submitting a DNA sample, which was a match from the same sample that they had from the November 1999 assault. 
The only catch, though, was that Jerome Cooper, who it matched with, had a twin brother, Tyrone, and supposedly both brothers were registered sex offenders and lived in the same area. Oh, shit. Um, go ahead, Journey. How are you a registered sex offender and your DNA isn't in a database? So that's that is the thing such that a I, good question. Yeah, that's the thing I don't know. Like, I don't know if they became after the fact. Like, if they both were caught for a different crime, were sex offenders registered, and then that's where the DNA came from. But you would think they'd have both DNA sets then mm-hmm. at that point. But at the time, 1999, DNA technology, they were like, we know it's a Cooper. We don't know if it's Jerome. Wow, I just tried mixing the names. Jerome or Tyrone. Um, But it's one of them. Interesting. And to this day, the case still remains open. So moral of the story of the last four super short tidbits and the first one that I covered, like, use your twinness to your advantage, I'll say. Yeah. If you want to be a master criminal, maybe consider it because – Police and investigators have such a hard time solving a crime when they have similar pieces of evidence. Sorry, I was thinking okay. through this whole thing. I'm like, man, if you want to be like a like a career criminal, yeah. you better hope and pray that you were born with an identical twin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. yeah. That's insane. Um, but yeah, those are like the twin stories that I have. Um they're kind of all like regardless of the crime that's being committed a lot of it is very similar in the sense of same eyewitness testimonies if there's any because they look the same no dna evidence if there is dna evidence dna evidence sure one can be placed we don't know which one maybe both were there we couldn't tell you um but we don't have enough so we're just not gonna do anything with the case and it's just gonna sit open more or less so unfortunate but at the (laughs) same time like it's literally all they can do yeah because yeah thinking about like the rembard case like yes i agree one of them should be convicted and do their time like whichever one was guilty Mm -hmm. but like the family saying like let them hash it out or like people that Mm -hmm. are i'm sure people are like just lock them both up but it's like we accidentally incarcerate innocent people all the time. So it would look so bad if we incarcerated two people knowing yeah. one was innocent and we just couldn't differentiate them. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's almost it's like, so tricky. But would you rather have someone who's guilty go free? Like that's the argument, yeah. right? It's so weird. It seems yeah. like a really like, like it's an argument of like ethics or morals. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It really is. Um, but yeah, that's my little spiel on twins. All right. Well, thank you so much. That was really interesting. I don't want to offend any twins out there, but I think twins are so <laughs> weird and I think they're so <laughs> neat. <laughs> I'm so intrigued by them, but like I I've never met or known twins. So like I could not give you like any firsthand experience, but they're just so fascinating. I know. I completely agree. I know like one set of identical twins and multiple fraternal twins and all of them. I'm like, "Do you have twin telepathy? Can you read minds?" <laughs> <laughs> No, it's it's super interesting and it's really interesting to me how like their just just the fact that they were born the way that they were makes solving crime when they're involved yeah. that much harder. 
Yeah. yeah. Like, it's crazy. It's almost a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, yeah. You're born with one, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but thank you so much, Nicole. Those cases were all very interesting. Um and listening to that and kind of hearing what we can't solve with uh, when involved to twin cases kind of brings us very nicely into our next discussion, which Journey is going to be leading, which is about the faults that we might find in forensic science. And I'm sure our listeners might not like to hear the fact that there might be faults in forensic science because it's what we rely on to solve crime. But like everything there's always going to be issues with it, and it's really important that we bring those forward and talk about them now. So, Journey, would you like to get us started on this exciting conversation? Yeah, so we took a whole class on the faults in forensics, um, but I'm not going to cover everything that we talked about in that class because it was like a whole semester's worth of information, even though that class got canceled more often than it was actually held. Um, yep. But if you are interested, the uh, the textbook that we used is The Scientific Method in Forensic Science, a Canadian handbook by uh, Mike Isles and Paul Wilson. I don't know how available it is. I feel like we all struggled to get it. Um, I think, it, don't tell the dean this, I think I like got mine online for free. By yeah, Tor- I think when like ZZ Library <laughs> was still going, yeah. or Z Library. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it basically just talks about, like, what's wrong with forensics and how can we make it better and, like, what needs to happen Mm -hmm. and all of that fun stuff. So if you guys are interested in reading it, um, I would suggest that. It is a textbook, so don't expect it to be interesting. Um, I will also recommend Actual Innocence, too. Yes. I don't know if you were going to mention that, because that's more kind of book-like, I'd say, like... It is a textbook. We used it as a textbook, but it's more novel-like. Yeah, it I has stories. That. It goes into... Yeah, like um, every chapter is a different case study sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it goes into... Um, it's written by the people who started, like, actu- um, the Innocence Project, The Innocence right? Project. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so it's it called Actual in- Innocence um, by Barry Sheck, Peter Newfeld, and Jim Dwyer. It's when justice goes wrong and how to make it right. Yes. Yeah, so... Um, the first thing that I think we should kind of discuss is DNA, since this case involves twins, and twin DNA is very intriguing. Um, so monozygotic, um, which is identical twins, they actually have identical DNA, which offers a very unique problem for forensic examiners because they're not able to tell which twin actually committed the crime, as we saw with um, the last one or the couple that Nicole talked about. Um and so there's, it's also an issue, as we saw, with eyewitness testimony because twins are identical, so we can't even tell them apart visually, especially if it's, like, late at night and we're far away. We did a whole talk about that in our psychology and law where, like, eyewitnesses are unreliable as it is, so how are we going to expect them to tell the difference, especially if twins are involved? Um, yeah. Sorry. Just to add on that with, like, eyewitness, it's, like, when we're – when we think about like an eyewitness to a crime, I think like a lot of people assume like, oh, it is broad daylight. You are standing six feet away and you just witness the crime and can see who did it. Exactly. But the reality is usually there's at least a form of trauma happening. Like someone points a gun at you. There's like, I mean, I know we've spoken about it again in psych and law. Like there's that effect where if someone points a gun at you, you're not going to remember what their face looks like. You're going to remember that there was a gun pointed at you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I just have the question of like, for you guys, what are some ways that we can fix 
twin DNA? Um, I, that is an excellent question, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> there really isn't any so, way. No. So my question is then, like, because I don't really have a biology background, but, like, is it 100% we have determined the exact same? Or are there components that can help differentiate? So when you Google, do identical twins have DNA? The answer is no, but it's not a reliable source that comes up. And they're only Mm, saying no because there's mutations that can happen. So you Mm -hmm. can be identical twins, but like one identical twin might have um, a mutation of some sort. But I feel like you wouldn't be identical then. But I guess they're identical in the sense that they came from the same egg. Yeah, I just looked it up really briefly. And like the National Institute of Health, at least for the States, obviously, um, said that because they share the same zygote, which is why they're monozygotic, um, they are identical in terms of genetic heritage. So they're considered to be indistinguishable from each other. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, it's just if there's mutations within the DNA, but that's such a, like a low factor. Yeah. You can't like rely or hope Mm -hmm. each case that they'd have that. Well, and even in the term or like in the case where um, like there's semen present, because we could tell Mm -hmm. blood type from semen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So some, it's also very rare that monozygotic twins don't have the same blood type, but that's something that they can also look into. So with that one, I would look into Mm -hmm. if there's a difference in blood type, because then that would tell you which twin did it as well. But that's such a rare case that it's not 100% either. Yeah, yeah you have like to. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, continue. Okay, I was gonna say, like, you'd have to consider everything on top of just DNA, which is hard to do when you're just looking at it because DNA is like the gold standard. That's what you need. But like, yeah, I don't know. I think like looking at like personalities of the twins or like what they were doing, where they were, um, like upbringings, kind of stuff that could have shaped them into it. Like, yeah. sure, the initial DNA may give you the set of twins. But then you, yeah, use that as your starting point and then funnel and narrow down from that. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like in a case with twins, and obviously we're not going to find fingerprints at every crime scene. Yeah. But if there is fingerprints, I feel like that would be the next most solid piece of evidence to differentiate them because that is like the only difference between twins yeah 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 but like you said like even thinking about the nempard twins again like there was there was no fingerprints there like so yeah and eyewitnesses they look the same so yeah you can't rely on eyewitness for them you can't rely on their dna for them like you can rely on their fingerprints and their upbringing slash personality yeah yeah which is tricky and any like scars or tattoos, but again, like if eyewitnesses don't know, then yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's one major like shortcoming in forensics is that we depend so much on DNA and on eyewitness testimony, and like in mm-hmm. these cases, neither of them are going to help you solve the case, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, I found a story that I would like your opinions on because it's okay. Funny. So there was a Florida woman who is being charged with murdering her seventy-nine-year-old roommate. Uh, when she was in custody, the police officers gave her a Mountain Dew drink, and she poured it all over herself in order to contaminate DNA. 
So officers like found her on a street with a hammer and a knife, no shoes and bloodied clothes. When they were escorting her to the patrol car, the officers mentioned that they would be collecting her DNA. And I'm assuming DNA from the blood on her clothes. So she asked Mm. for a drink and they gave her Mountain Dew. And then she poured it all over herself. Is there like acidity in Mountain Dew that's going to, she thought was going to affect it? Well, like if they're taking her DNA, like yeah, pouring it's all in you, honey. Yeah, like, <laughs> like it's not going anywhere. <laughs> they're gonna take a cheek squ- cheek swab, like they're <laughs> yeah, like that's not gonna. T- I don't know. It was just so funny. That wow. She, yeah. That's I was like, yeah. No, it just it, I would, that she sounds like one of those people that's like, oh, you can get rid of evidence just by pouring more of something else on it. Yeah, it's going to cover it, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's like the kind of person that thinks just using soap and water is going to get rid of, like, blood stains and, like, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, it's not going to show up under ultraviolet light sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, I kind of follow her thinking, but I also have no idea what she was thinking with that. Um, yeah, no. But I figured I'd ask you guys and see if that, uh, like, do you think that it obviously wouldn't, but do you think it could contaminate it enough that they would have trouble taking DNA off of her. Like, from... Mm. Like, if she killed someone and there was DNA on her, like, aside from blood, would it destroy it enough to be unusable? I feel like we need to know, like, the the chemical makeup of Mountain Dew to determine (laughs) if it would destroy it. But, like, I feel like unless she poured some other form of, like dna containing liquid on her body i feel like it wouldn't really contaminate it it would just dilute it a little bit yeah yeah i feel like it would just put a sticky layer on top of what is already there yeah like i don't think it's gonna wipe anything away or like cover anything i think it's just like an annoyance for the investigators (laughs) at that time they're like shit like now we gotta clean this girl up yeah yeah i don't think like personally again don't take it with whatever you will but i don't think mountain dew is enough to destroy evidence yes considering like people will bleach rooms and like themselves to try and get rid of evidence and dna evidence and it doesn't work sometimes like i don't know yeah i I don't know what's in mountain dew though so i think the only way next (laughs) we just untap potential of mountain dew yeah (laughs) twins and mountain dew literally how you solve or how you commit the perfect crime yeah but i i think the only way that it could actually contaminate dna is if you have a swab and then somehow Mm -hmm. that swab gets contaminated with mountain dew i think that's the only chance that it would contaminate it but um just dousing yourself in mountain dew isn't maybe the best way to get rid of dna yeah I might yeah. suggest like a bath. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You would think. Um, but on the topic of contamination of evidence, we also need to discuss the shortcomings of hair analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, so DNA is only in the root of your hair. So mm-hmm. I feel like TV shows kind of just be like, oh, we have hair. Oh, we have your DNA. That's not yeah. how that works. You have to have the root as well. Um And so hair grows from the root, so the ends are not indicative of what is going on currently. So Mm -hmm. if they test the end of your hair, they're not going to get an accurate result of whatever's going on in your life at that time, 
which we saw with the motherist scandals in Ontario, I think it was, where... Um, Sounds familiar. Yeah, this doctor was... Um, I think he... It was some sort of like child protective something or other. And so he was getting hair samples from parents and then testing them. And then he was like, he did 26,000 tests and locked up like so many parents or whatever. And this one girl, she, I don't think she was ever an alcoholic or she might've been when she was younger or whatever, but they took her hair and they tested it and it came back with like insane amounts of alcohol on it, but it was from hairspray. Oh, so yeah, like, yeah. And wow. yeah, yeah. I'm surprised you guys don't remember that. It was like a I core don't memory that. for me. I remember watching the documentary and like I can see her face in the whole story. I've oh, never no. seen the documentary, but I do remember Mother Risk and like that stuff where they were taking hair samples and there was like an alarming amount of children getting taken away because of hair samples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. very um, not okay science. Yeah, yeah. No, I really, I really, and I know they didn't in that case, but I hope, like, if someone's taking hair samples to see, yeah. like, in this case, if a mother is fit to take care of her children, like, I hope they're not only looking at a sample of hair. I hope they're looking at, like, like an interview with the parents, and, <laughs> like, an interview or observing mm-hmm. the child. I hope they're doing, like, a medical examination. I hope, yeah. like, you cannot rely on one single source of evidence. Yeah, and hair isn't going to tell you what it, like it's basically only good for DNA and that's if you have the root. If you yeah, have the like, root. Yeah. It can tell you hair color, but even then like if you still don't have the root, you don't know what the natural hair color is anyways, right? Yeah. Um yeah. so then we also have like fingerprint errors. Um you can't Ooh. remove your fingerprints no matter how hard you try. Um, short of just like cutting off your fingers. So many people have tried. It doesn't work. <laughs> Don't try it. It um, just makes you more distinguishable. If you literally. have a really messed up finger, you are just more distinguishable. Exactly. Yeah. The only thing that can interrupt a fingerprint is like a scar or a wart. But even then, you're the only person with that scar or that wart in that spot with that fingerprint around it. Yep. Um Another thing that really annoys me is that there's no set number of ridge characteristics that need to match when matching a fingerprint, like doing the analysis. So each practitioner basically has their own number of matches. So it's very like subjective, I think is, or not subjective or whatever. Like each practitioner can decide what's a match and what's not a match. But like, if you send it to a different one, then they're going to be like, oh, that's not a match because there's not eight characteristics. And they're like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, labs in Europe could be like, oh, well, we have 10. That's enough. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, labs in, like, the U.S. could be like, well, oh, there's, like, three. Sure. Yeah, like, exactly. It just, it, there's no standard that allows investigators to know this is exactly how many I need to make a match. Yeah. Um, which can be good or bad, depending on the case. Well, and even, like, who decides what the perfect number is, right? Yeah. Because there could still be cases at that point, where that's not enough. I feel like you can like pick and choose at that point too. Like mm-hmm. I remember when we had to compare fingerprints in class, like some didn't like I could not find matches between them, but then others were like very clearly matched. So like where is that line drawn then for you to decide that this is and this isn't something that you exactly. know exactly. Well, and even in the case of the, I think it was the Isdal woman, where mm-hmm. they identified her or like whatever, they matched her belongings with her for through fingerprints or whatever. 
but yeah. her skin was burned and the fingerprints were yeah. so terrible. It's like, who yeah. decided that that was a match? <laughs> like, I, I, yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then like, it's also human error plays a huge part in it because, yeah, like, we are human. We can make mistakes. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I feel like APHIS has played a big role in that. Um, because a computer yeah. is then searching for that and there isn't that human error with it. And so I think when you submit a fingerprint into APHIS, they do a big search. They come back with like 10 or 15 matches, like potential matches. And then it's up oh. to the human examiner to go through and actually be like, this is a match. This isn't a match. I feel like though, even with APHIS, you need a human um, programmer to mm-hmm. create it and then, like, how are we telling the computer to pick up on certain characteristics? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what, how, how does that work? That's another, like. Yeah, exactly. Question mark in the, yeah. Right. Um, so then the next kind of fault that I have is bias. Um, yeah. Because we are human beings. Our bias does cloud our judgment. Like. Yeah. Espe- like, we saw it a lot in our episode about, um, like, photo lineups. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with like the, I don't remember which case it was. I don't think it was a Norfolk four. I think it was a different one where, um, a lot of times officers will bring in the suspect and like kind of tell the person like, this is our suspect. You should kind of choose them. So like, yeah, we're giving feedback being like, Oh, like good job on that choice. Or, exactly. Oh, you like, chose the right person. Yeah. 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 Like, like I know police want the victim to feel like they did a good job, but unfortunately like, to prevent bias from falling on them. Like they really just need to be like, okay, thank you for your help. Yeah, exactly. Goodbye. Like leave now. (laughs) Right. Or even like, like I think it's confirmation bias where you're like looking for information Mm -hmm. that confirms your theory. Like that one's huge. And a lot of people are like, they get this one suspect in their mind and they're like, no, it has to be them. So they're looking for evidence that only fits them, but they're missing like a whole bunch of it. Yeah. Yeah. So like confirmation bias also then turns into like, tunnel vision so it's like Mm -hmm. i think it's this person i have a hunch so i am only going to look for information about this person that confirms my theories which is such a big issue (laughs) yes it is um that leads me into my next point which is having untrained police officers performing forensics Oh oh my gosh yeah that one makes me furious. Grinds my gears. Not only because I went to school for forensics and can't get a job because you have to be a police <laughs> officer, <laughs> but um, it results in like improper scene protection because they don't understand what part of the scene needs to be protected. So they don't rope off the right yep. area. They're contaminating yep. it by like walking around and getting rid of a whole bunch of evidence and disturbing so much and all that. Um Often they're not collecting their evidence properly because they haven't been trained on proper evidence collection because this is something they haven't gone to school for. Um, In Canada, forensic officers are given a two-month training in Ottawa, and they are not required to have a forensic science degree. The only requirement is that you have to be a police officer for five years before. Yeah. Which, and I think that varies depending on the province, but it's like five to ten years you got to be. And then they will consider you... To being promoted to forensics. Exactly. Yeah. You, you're not guaranteed then, to go. Yeah. 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 And even then, like, yes, you have a lot of field experience in actually, like, 
you know, being at a crime scene, understanding what you need to look for and all that stuff. But like you said, Journey, like they have two months of training on how to properly collect the evidence, but like they don't actually need any background in it. Like there are so many things that can go wrong that are so small if you don't know. Yeah. Well, and even when I was talking to um, one of the guys on the like city of Calgary forensic team and he was like, because you have a four-year degree in forensics, you would most likely be accepted into the forensic program, but he couldn't guarantee it. So yeah. after five years of policing with a degree in forensics, it still isn't guaranteed that I would get to be on the forensic team, yeah. which feels like such a shortcoming in forensics because it's like... Oh, 100%. Yes, real life experience is important. Yeah. But you're also kind of like... They'd have to unlearn so much, I feel like. Because if you've been doing the wrong procedure from day one, it's going to be way more difficult to relearn it or like unlearn it and then relearn it versus just being like, well, this is just how I've done it. So after this two months, I'm just going to do it my way. Yeah. Yeah, Well, like it's a little demotivating or unmotivating because it's like, well, if I – for like – at the beginning of like our when we were doing forensics in university, I was like, well, maybe I'll still go like to to depot and do like RCMP, mm-hmm. and then I'll do forensics because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work on a forensic team in the RCMP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. want to do that now because I don't want to be a street cop for at least five years. <laughs> yes. <Yep>. Um, <laughs> but it's it's just like it it almost like encourages people not to study forensics in school because you're not even guaranteed to get a job in the forensic field with it, like say like being a CSI, like a crime scene investigator. Yeah. Because you have to be a cop for like five years. And then even if like you're still not a shoe in, if you've done four years of university and forensics plus five years of policing. Well, you look at the three of us, we're three very intelligent women who have studied forensics. We would be Mm -hmm. such an asset to any forensic team, but because we're not police officers, we can't do that. Yeah. That yeah. was like the number one thing. Like I remember Andre coming in and giving our like lecture on policing and like the crime scene unit. Yeah. And for him to have said like, sorry, you need to be a cop for at least five years. And it was five years when he started. And this was like decades ago. Really? So like it could be f- upwards of seven to 10 years now. That yeah. was like the moment where I was like, okay, well, got to find a new path because I'm not – I. That's the last thing I want to do is be a street cop. Yeah. And that's the shitty yeah. th- or the crappy thing too is like, sure, you may be a street cop for five years. You could be canning out traffic tickets for five years and never step foot on a crime scene. Exactly. And then they're going to throw you into a forensics crime scene investigative unit if you get on yeah. that. Like, that and makes this, no this sense isn't, to me. Just s- small thing. This isn't to dis police officers because (laughs) obviously a lot of them still do a great job but this is just to say like the system it's the system it's the system like we have a lot of arguably a lot more knowledge on crime scene um techniques and preservation techniques than they might have at least before their training in ottawa but Mm -hmm. we still would not even be considered because we don't have that experience in the field that might just be parking tickets for five years exactly Yeah, it's just, and the whole reason they don't have civilian forensic um, investigators is because um, we it's can't a carry a concern. gun. Yeah, yeah, like it's a safety concern. They don't want to babysit like, us. And like, I get that, but it's also like, 
if it, we're at the point where a forensic investigator is coming into the scene, the scene should be cleared. There's police mm-hmm. officers doing their job, making sure no one else can come into the scene. So it shouldn't technically be an issue. Yeah, it's not yeah. like we're going guns blazing into like a shootout. Like, yeah. you don't call a CSI investigator. To a shootout. Like, yeah, it, exactly. It feels like they're acting as if like every single crime scene where a forensic investigator goes is going to be like criminal minds where like they're bringing in the psychologist to go to the active crime scene. And you're like, yeah. You don't need, in most <laughs> cases, we don't need the psychologist at an active crime scene where exactly. there is a hostage situation. <laughs> yeah. They wouldn't bring them into that situation because there's not yet like a crime scene, really. Yeah. Like there's no evidence that there's we an can act of collect crime. from that. Yes. There's not yeah. a crime scene. <laughs> the crime is still being, like, still happening, but. I don't know. That's something that I just have beef with because it's so annoying and it results in so, so many issues within yeah. like solving cases, right? That they just don't even think to look for certain things. But yeah. Um, on top of that, there we also have like a huge lack of standardized procedures, which mm-hmm. Michelle like beat into us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't look at SOP the same. It's like a yeah. trigger word. <laughs> um, but that's the same kind of thing where like you can't have standardized procedures if your forensic officers take a two-month training program in Ottawa. And There's then- too many procedures to try and learn to try exactly. and standardize. And they're not going to try and create that many to standardize all of them because yeah. some, sciences, some of the sciences like quite literally can't be standardized, yeah. which is, I think, another flaw in itself. In it- of itself 100 percent. and i even i was going through notes and i saw like there was a discussion she's like how do we fix it it's like is it better to fix it um like once people are forensic officers like standardized mm-hmm. schooling or standardized like training or whatever and we yeah. i think as a class have decided that it's better to standardize schooling so that once you're out like everyone's at the same spot you don't need to start from scratch like everyone learns from point a the right way to do it so that by the time they're in the job everyone knows the right way to do it and you're not like bringing someone in who learned a different way having them unlearn it then relearn it and hoping that it goes well yeah Um, yeah yeah but that's really difficult to do if you can't get a job with forensic schooling at a crime scene i guess because you guys both got forensic jobs <laughs> not even they're not forensics though like our jobs are not forensics at all really i'd say it's more financial like but it's yeah, there's like financial forensics mm, I, we I, look at excel sheets <laughs> yeah i don't i don't i don't know what i would consider our work to be honest because i i definitely do not think we were prepared in forensic no Sorry. It's all good. (laughs) I definitely don't think we were prepared in our forensic courses to do what we're doing now, which makes me think it's not forensics. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the fact that we're just looking at Excel sheets, I'm like, this isn't forensics. But at the same time, like some digital forensics, like, for example, looking for like, uh, like terrorist organizations and stuff like that online mm-hmm. like that could be cons- like cyber forensics is a thing yeah so yeah. i have no idea I, <laughs> I would say like our stream is investigative i wouldn't label it with forensics right yeah. i would say say like major financial crimes 
I would put that more into a forensics because they yeah. are pre- they're more preventative than what we do. I think if we had yeah. more of a preventative and active stance on cases, it would become forensics, but that's lacking, I would say. So it would it's more investigative. Okay. Yeah. I think yeah, I think that would that's a pretty good description of like where we fall in that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting, because I totally considered it forensics. I was like, it's yeah. not like crime scene forensics, but it is like financial forensics. But I consider kind of- it close enough to forensics that yeah. I feel justified in this field after <laughs> school. <laughs> Doing four years. Yeah. Yeah. I do yeah. I do think like we we er- we learned the critical thinking from our forensics courses to apply to our current position. Like definitely that regard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you also think though that like this whole CSI effect, which is where like you've seen TV, you know what happens with crimes or whatever, that's what that means. Do you think that our course was kind of structured around that where she gave us like oh, yeah. what's exciting about it instead of like oh, going yeah. into like the financial crimes and like some of the like lesser known, less exciting like forensics 100%. just to keep people enrolled? Oh. For sure. We had one in-class presentation from someone who worked in financial crimes, and me and Nicole work with her now. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's like, I don't yeah, know like it's <laughs> Yeah, but it's, well, exactly. That That's just it. It's that forensic programs are still, at, at least the one we did, and I'm not bashing it, but they're still so very focused on the types of crime that people expect when you hear forensic sciences. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can say the words forensic accounting to me and I know we did an episode on it, but now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm like, I don't know what forensic accounting is. Like, what do they do? Yeah. <laughs> like we only yeah. did like the physical forensic sciences through our degree. Yes. Very yeah. much so. And like, I don't and know I- if that's because like digital forensic sciences are still so new and undiscovered. Mm-hmm. Or not undiscovered, but like un emerging yeah they're just like unresearched and no one really knows what's going on because no one really knows everything about technology anyways yeah um but yeah so there's a lack of standardized procedures we obviously need to fix that no one knows how but hopefully something happens (laughs) Um, (laughs) if you talk to one of our old professors she has a lot of strong feelings on it um (laughs) another thing uh, that's a huge issue and a whole chapter in this uh, scientific method and forensics book, which is stats being misunderstood by the jury due to confusing language. Um, yeah. I've, yeah, I didn't understand anything she said in that lecture. So I completely get how they maybe <laughs> cause issues <laughs> yeah. in front of a jury. But uh, one of the examples she had was um, the expert says, there is a chance of a coincidental match with an innocent man is one in 40,000. So then the jurors hear that and they think the chance that the accused is innocent is one in 40,000. So the odds that he is guilty must be 39,999 to one. Mm. Therefore saying he's, he's guilty. more likely to be innocent than guilty. Oh, maybe. Gotcha. I couldn't tell you. You know, numbers. I don't know. I didn't. <laughs> I, the, didn't I didn't. That's yeah. exactly the whole point of this chapter. What? <laughs> stats are confusing. I've never got. I've never understood stats. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, 
I, and I completely, I, could, I, I get yeah. why she, that's such an important thing because us yeah. who have taken a course and we understand, I think you two both took stats class. Yep. I took advanced yeah. statistics. Yep. Yeah, I yeah. did too. I never did. I've gotten no idea. I've struggled understanding statistics since grade five. Like, I don't yeah. get it. They're so confusing. And then it also leads into um, the prosecutor's fallacy. So mm-hmm. I couldn't find too much about like what explains this. So I just found an example. And so the example says that the probability that this nurse's shift would co- coincide with so many deaths and resuscitations by chance is one in 324 million. So she must be guilty. So saying that there's like a low percentage that or like a low chance that she would be like just by happenstance like so many people would die on her shift so like they are saying she's guilty because angel of death kind of thing yeah um yeah basically like she was there at the right time whatever so she has to be the one yeah yeah i guess that's fair like reading that statistic like one in 342 million i'd be like yeah they're probably guilty that makes total sense but like thinking about it the perspective you said like it's a nurse's shift mm-hmm. what about the nurses that are like you like they're on the same rotation so there's like yeah. say there's like four or five nurses on the same rotation all of them have a 342 out of one or whatever million chance of yeah. being guilty like we can't only rely on the statistics told but obviously that's really hard because when you're a jury you're like oh that just sounds like she's really likely to have done it Exactly. And I feel like a lot of like prosecutors are like defense. Yeah. Prosecutors take advantage of the fact that the statistics are confusing. So then they throw them in. They're like, oh, well, she has to be guilty because there's a one in 342 million chance that she's not or whatever. Yeah. And so then they know that it confuses the jurors. So then it just like, I don't know, adds on. Yeah. Um, those, that one's probably like one of the biggest issues I would say. Um, even though we don't hear about it a lot and it has nothing really to do with a science. Um, yeah. That's but- more like in the trial aspect. Like I think if you're looking at it from like a before and after with the before being the crime and the physical science and the after being the trial and the verdict, like there's so many faults in DNA, in bite mark, in like every type of physical science that – ultimately affects the trial but then once you're at the trial then you have all of these numbers being thrown out to completely like skew what was found yeah in the physical science you know what i mean Mm -hmm. well and so many people like a lot of um like forensic experts get on the stand and there's Mm -hmm. so many big words because it is a science like if you try to get a forensic expert to describe forensic chemistry to a jury Most people don't understand most terms in chemistry as it is, or even biology, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's just certain terms that we're lucky enough to understand, but not a lot of jurors would. Yeah. Yeah. Like the experts on a jury trial are going to give the facts. They're probably not going to try to give like an explain like I'm five kind of description. Exactly. Like they're probably just going to say it how they said it in their report, because if they say it any I don't want to say dumb down, but kind of like if they try to simplify it at all, I feel like they might think that the jury thinks they are less competent than they really are mm-hmm. or it could be misconstrued in a way too. Like if they are trying to summarize their findings um, in a certain way that 
something slightly is mixed up or yeah. like the defense or the prosecution can jump on that and be like oh this is this you know well, and the yeah, defense and prosecution absolutely. they have the report so they're like well in your report you said this why aren't you yeah. saying this now and then kind of um attack the credibility of the expert or whatever um yeah but yeah. that also kind of leads into the whole um like terms you use so in tv shows we hear it's a match it's an exact oh, match yeah. that matched 100 percent. you cannot say that in a forensic science yeah. because nothing is ever an exact mm-hmm. match like even twins even twins even dna you can't say this is yeah. an exact match to orlando nemhard because mm-hmm. it might be brandon's yes yeah. it is um What's the word that they use instead? Um, I think they have to do like similarity or like. Um, I just think of similar, like they are something percent similar. Yeah, or they like they are appear to be a match, or they appear similar. Or yeah, like, there's some sort appear, of jargon. That appear, they have to to appear to be appear to be appear to be words right yeah. there. Yeah. It appears to be a match. Those are magic yeah. words. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So like this DNA appears to match Orlando Nemhard. Like, and then you're like, well, what is appears? What is the percentage to match? Are we looking at a 98 percent? Are we looking at an above 50 percent? Like it's exactly. so ambiguous. Well, and even like. That percentage is such a fun term because I don't remember what course it was, but they talked about the difference between saying something in percentage and saying the percentile that it was in. Yeah. So they're like, yeah. oh, this matches to like the 98th percentile. But that means something completely different than saying this is a 98% match. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just, oh, it's tricky. Um, <laughs> but I didn't research that, so I can't really talk too much about it. Um the next kind of point I have is like bite mark evidence is incredibly faulty. We did a whole yeah. episode on that. If you yeah. want to hear us yell about Dr. West and bite mark analysis, <laughs> go listen to it. <laughs> we yeah. get heated. Um, and then um, contrary to TV shows, forensic examiners cannot determine time since death because mm-hmm. you can't mm-hmm. prove that. Like, yeah, I yeah. think we briefly spoke about that in an old episode as well. I just can't Probably. remember which one off the top of my head, but you can yeah. like guesstimate. You can you can take into account various factors mm-hmm. and try to create a timeline. But from my understanding, like you could use like entomology to like hopefully give you a timeline if yeah. present. But like it's not going to like you said, there's no match, there's no exact time, there's no exact frame. It won't be of definitive. That. It will no. It yeah. won't be defended. Yeah, I think you, that was one of my biggest shocks from school was learning yeah. you couldn't actually say this person died five hours ago. Yeah, from yeah. a body because like every single TV show is like this person died at about three forty a.m. Literally, yeah, the hour and the minute. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's just like there's so many different things. Like, yes, you can look at rigor mortis, but that's different for each body and same with liver yeah. it's like it's like yeah. it's different for the humidity and it's different for yeah. where they were laying and it's like exactly. there's so many factors yeah yeah and like yeah climate and everything um affects that which i think we talked about in like our decomp or something i, I remember nicole so. talking about it 
Yeah. Um, probably. Yeah. So listen to that episode. I'd love to tell you which one it is, but I just don't know. Um, I think it's Tophonomy. Tophonomy and the Redhead Murders. Okay. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. That sounds about just right. Just because I love my Tophonomy and that sounds like <laughs> something that I would have talked about. That sounds about right. Okay. Um, so the next one I have is like forensic anthropology specific. Um, and this one is very new. Like these are some very new issues. Um, so with forensic anthropology, we had a whole episode on it. Um, with anthropology, you try to discover like age estimation, sex estimation, height estimation, um, which population they belong to. And I think that's it. But with the use of puberty blockers and like gender affirming surgeries, um, being more common nowadays, Mm -hmm. How are you going to be able to tell from a skeleton what sex they were? You know? Because, like, we don't know the effects that puberty blockers have on your skeleton after death because it's still such a new thing, right? Absolutely. And I feel like this is going to become, like, an increasing issue. I don't want to say issue because, like, it's not an issue in life when people are using these. A debate, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But just the sense of, like... Think, for example, about, like, the bodies that we're finding now that maybe they were buried or missing in the 70s. So they have been skeletized or skeletonized. I don't know the word. But (laughs) for, like... For like 40, 50 years, and now Mm -hmm. we're trying to identify them based on skeletons alone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if this person has like say taken puberty blockers and they identified say they were female to male since they were like 15 years old so all anybody ever knew them as in their adult life was a male but their skeleton looks female yeah that's just going to be so much trickier for like future historic cases where there's like cold cases trying to identify a skeleton yeah yeah and i really hope they can figure out how to make like i discern these differences because obviously Mm -hmm. it is going to become more prevalent and it is going to become more important Mm -hmm. but right now yeah you're right like there is we don't know any way to discern like yeah what it is like we can't we can discern we can determine the sex of a skeleton but we don't know we we don't know the gender so we don't know how they actually identified and whether or not we're actually creating for say like a real accurate if we did like a like a skeletal reconstruction or facial reconstruction, we might be making a female reconstruction when they identified as male, so they look totally different. Exactly. Yeah. Well, even like putting out like, oh, we found the body of a female who's twenty four to forty eight yeah. years old, like X Y Z, and that doesn't match to anyone who's missing because they weren't female when they died, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So that is a whole issue. Um. Forensic anthropology is kind of becoming less and less useful because of it. Um, And in terms of like estimating population affinity, so many people are like intermixing with different like quote unquote races. So Mm -hmm. it's becoming almost obsolete because no one person is fully Caucasian or a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So the features that are distinctive are no longer distinctive because they're being meshed with so many others so like it's you almost can't tell right like in the 70s yes it made sense because there wasn't 
like there was still so much segregation going on. But nowadays, like, um, it's just, it's just more common that people aren't sticking to like, I don't know how to say this politically correct. I think we know exactly, <laughs> yeah. I think we know exactly what you mean though. Like, like it's yeah, yeah. it's much more common for the population now not to kind of stick to its individual ethnic groups than what it might have been 40 50 years ago. Yes, exactly. Or even further. Yeah. Yes. I just I don't like the term race because humans don't have races. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I struggle to use it. Um but anyway, so the next thing I kind of have is that impression evidence is a major issue with collecting the evidence and then comparing it to things in order to identify it. We see it a lot with fingerprints and tire mark and shoe tread and like all of those things because you just – you can't look at something and say definitively, excuse me, this is what it is mm-hmm. because you just like – there has to be so much – there's so much that can go wrong, really. Yeah. Um. I was looking on the Innocence Project website as well for this, and I found some very interesting uh, statistics. Um, okay. So more than half of the wrongful conviction cases covered by the Innocence Project and around a quarter of all wrongful conviction cases since 1989 have been because of misapplied forensic science. That's so heart- disheartening to hear. Yeah. Right? Like, it hurts because, like... You put four years, some people, many more years into an education to like try and better a science and like understand that science. Yeah. And then you have that statistic of misapplied forensics. That also makes me so sad because like, Nicole, I heard what you were saying and you're absolutely right. Like we pour four years and there's countless countless people who obviously are pouring even more of their lives into this just to be told that there is a lessening population of people that believe in forensic science because there are there's both a few individuals who are making a bad name for forensic Mm -hmm. science because they're using it like Mm -hmm. biasly and they know they're using it on like they're misusing it yeah but Mm -hmm. then there's also the fact that there's like I don't want to say forensic science is new science because chemistry is not new. Biology is not new. All this stuff. But obviously, we're always looking for new ways to solve a crime. So for a lot of years, bite mark analysis was like one of the Mm go-tos. And within the past, I'd say it's only like what, like a decade or so, we've realized how faulty bite mark analysis is. So it's just a little bit intimidating to go into a field that is so relatively new, like I'd say like 150 years or so is kind of new because biology, chemistry, like they have been trying to figure that that out for like, like hundreds of years. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like everything we learned could be irrelevant in 50 years. We don't know. Exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of the issue. And it's like, that's just of cases that we know. That we know of. That have been labeled yeah. wrongful conviction cases. Like we don't actually know the correct percentage of that, which is bonkers and it's hard to like i feel like forensic science is such a corruptible field Mm -hmm. if you're in a physical science if you get the wrong person as an investigator you get the wrong whatever one change in that piece of evidence could be the make it or break it for an individual's guilt or innocence exactly which is like so hard to like conceptualize because that's so much power that you are placing on people with 
two months of yeah. training. Literally. Ugh. And, and, yeah. and that's where bias comes into play. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's not good. And so just, um, the website also said that a lot of the time it's because forensic science practitioners provided either misleading testimony that exaggerated the connection between the crime scene evidence yeah. and the person of interest, or they mischaracterized exculpatory results as inconclusive, or they downplayed the limitations of forensic science method that they used. So, like, they didn't tell you, like, yeah. oh, this cannot say this. This cannot yeah. be an exact match. We can only remove people from the suspect pool instead of saying this is who it was. Yeah. Um, and the polygraph test is kind of a whole oh issue within that um, yeah. because it measures like bodily functions and you're in an already stressful situation. So you're going to show stress markers on the polygraph and they're going to be like, well, you you did you it. You killed the you killed you, the guy. Well, isn't it that polygraphs can only come back inconclusive? There cannot be like a conclusive polygraph test that says that you did it. I think that's my understanding. Mm-hmm. I think they base yeah. it off of the number of inconclusive instances, like right. how many yeah. lives there were. Yeah, and this this fewer. reminds me. Sorry, no. As you said, this reminds me of like a Dateline podcast episode i even just listened to the other day which was like um really long story short man was murdered uh man's son and his wife were suspected of the killings they both got polygraph polygraph tests done and the son's test showed that he was lying lying so probably inconclusive and Mm -hmm. so that was one of the main pieces of evidence that they were saying like oh well he was inconclusive like he's being pretty suspicious but like it was well known that he had a traumatic brain injury as like an 11 year old or something and he was saying like and even through it all this like speaking to this kid's like stepmother his sister his friends all this stuff like he didn't always make the most sense or didn't always say things that were totally true. And it was because he had a traumatic brain injury. So he reacted differently to things being asked. So it was like, not only do polygraphs not always work on normal people who are obviously just probably really anxious to be hooked up to it and anxiety will impact the results. Mm -hmm, But then mm -hmm. thinking about people with conditions that naturally like they're, at rest result might already seem like an inconclusive result. Like someone with high blood pressure, for example, like I know they usually take controls and I don't know how blood pressure works, but (laughs) if they're telling the truth, but they're just stressed and their blood pressure rises, then yeah, they're probably going to sound like they're lying because it looks like they got stressed out. Exactly. Well, we even saw that with, um, when we did confessions and stuff, like, a lot of the times people who have like mental deficits, they are more likely to confess to the crime because you're convincing them that they did it. And then if you pair that with a polygraph test that they can't fully take anyways, like mm-hmm. it just snowballs into this huge issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned that in the States it's legal for police officers to lie to you. Yep. Yep. And I didn't get know evidence, I don't know how yeah. I missed that in our schooling. I don't know if that was... I don't know where I learned that, but... Because I think I, in Canada, they can't. But in the States, they can't. Correct. Yeah, um, I think they can omit information from you, obviously, mm-hmm. like in Canada. But they can't, like... I don't think they can outright 
lie to you and say, we have fingerprint evidence, so tell us the truth. That makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, also on the website, they say that like other times, like practitioners will provide false results, hide evidence, or they'll make mistakes that they just won't tell you that they make mistakes, which is kind of an issue. Um, so I was going to ask you guys, like, would it be better to have a public or a private forensic lab? That I have no idea. Like, there's so many things going into it and like the inner workings and the politics of it all and the funding, like... Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Good I think, bad from both. So yeah, I don't I know think what the in terms is. of like, in terms of transparency, I would like to think a public lab. But like, I know, for example, like the woman who was take like stealing the what like what was it like methadone or fentanyl samples for like 10 years and replacing them with like saline or something and falsifying a bunch like that was a public lab yeah yeah so that's not great but at the same time like private labs there's obviously a bunch of issues there too because like what if they're like what if they're falsifying documents and it's harder to tell because they're not owned by the government so there's not as much insight into them yeah exactly I think it's a it's a big debate that needs to be had, but by very qualified nope. people. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and unfortunately, there are not qualified people having that debate. Um, but that's pretty much what I have because I feel like this episode's getting really long. Um, but I just had like two more questions. Like, what can we do to improve forensics? And are there any other faults that you guys can think of that I maybe didn't cover? So many faults, but I feel like that could be like an episode in itself. Literally. Like we just like we took a yeah, any study, just talk about problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like literally any you give any case, we could find a fault in the forensics. Yeah. Like oh, it's absolutely. so sad to hear, but like it's just the truth at the end yeah. of the day. It's, um Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's like sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was I was just about to go a little on tangent in relation to that so you can go ahead but i was just gonna say that like that even relates to like not always forensic science but if thinking about um our class uh why okay it was wildlife forensics it was still in forensics (laughs) but when we had to pick like a random piece of food whether it's from the grocery store whether it's from restaurant whatever and then um take its dna and analyze the dna like didn't you find that part of your cow meat was fly was like yeah, a horse so fly? it was a sand fly so yeah yeah i so hear about this yeah. what the hell oh oh okay yeah long story short we had to we sampled two different pieces of meat to compare what it would be so i took Two samples from two different frozen dinners. We'll not name them. One of them came back as having a match for a sand fly. And so from my understanding, what our professor said was a lot of the times the databases that exist have faults in them. So what could have happened was this fly was on the cattle as it was killed. And then that fly DNA managed to somehow mix in with the cow that I was testing. Right. Yeah. Or like the sand fly is what was tested, but yeah. it just fe- it just fed on a cow. Fed so it has a cow DNA in it. Right. So yeah. it's like, I think in terms of like improving DNA databases, mm-hmm. 
in at, specifically in terms of wildlife, that's really hard because there are so many insects that feed mm-hmm. on other animals that co-mingle and like co-interact that like I don't I don't believe there were sand flies in Nicole's frozen dinner. No. <laughs> but according to her results, her meat was sand fly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And well, I've heard from like a couple students who had done that um I think a year ahead of us. Um, and they tested like seafood and they were like, this is supposedly this. And it came back as so not that. And they were mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. Cause it was cheaper well, someone- for it to be the second option than it was the first option. Yeah. That happens a lot, unfortunately, at sushi places. Um, someone in our class tested a Beyond Meat burger and it came back with chicken and like, high enough samples that it wasn't just a cross-contamination. Yeah, there was definitely chicken in that sample. That is not okay. Yeah. Wow. So that's just another side thing. That makes me want to try Beyond Meat Burger. I think there's so many ways. Pardon? That makes me want to try Beyond Meat Burger. (laughs) Try. I have a friend who's vegan, one of the whatevers. Um, And she was always telling me how she, like, occasionally has been very, very sick after eating one of those veggie burgers yeah. or, like, healthy burgers. And, like, that would make sense. Because if you're not used to eating meat and proteins and then all of a sudden you're ingesting that, your body's not going to like it. Wow. Well, exactly. That's I think terrible. It's, that's, like, similar to celiac. Like, not identical yeah. because I know celiac is, like, actually can't have it. Whereas vegan, it's yeah. often just you haven't eaten a it a tr- long time. Yeah. But still, like... Like, if you're advertising something as veggie burger, it better not have chicken in it. Right? Especially if you're, like, saying this is vegan, this is vegetarian. Like, yeah. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. Well, that's kind of all I have to offer to this conversation. Um, If any of our listeners want to get in touch with us and kind of uh, tell us any faults that they thought of that we yeah. maybe didn't cover or any um, opinions or thoughts on whatever we talked about. We would love to hear them. So yeah. Please start a comment or send us that. an email or something. Yeah. We'd love, we'd love to have some good conversations with our listeners. Um, I think it's pretty clear to say, as you probably heard throughout this episode, that all of us are like a little too passionate about the <laughs> problems in forensic science. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, if anyone brings up faults of forensic science, like, guaranteed you're going to get a conversation out of one of us. Yeah, definitely. And, like, a healthy conversation. Don't yes. be, like, scared to bring it up because I yeah. love – you can't have growth without criticism. You know exactly. what I mean? So, like – Absolutely. If, if we're not seeing where the faults are in the science, we're not going to be able to improve on it. So, And that being uh, said, if you're going to criticize us, you also need to be willing to hear our story and you can't just be criticizing yeah. for the sake of criticizing. Like there yeah. has to, it has to be constructive and you need to be willing to also have the conversation because we are willing to have the conversation with you. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. There has to be some give and take there. Like yeah. we yeah. are willing to receive criticism if you are also willing to receive the same. <laughs> I just don't want that to be like an open invitation for trolls to be like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's very fair. (laughs) Yeah. We're open to an open conversation where we are allowed to share our opinions, but they should be backed by facts and we shouldn't get too offended if we realize our opinion is not backed by fact and we have to switch our opinion. That's completely fine. We're allowed to grow as people and grow in our opinions. 
We're allowed yeah. to agree to disagree, but you don't need to be a dick about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That is perfect. Yes. Yep. All right. Well, with that all being said, Journey, I would like to thank you very much for leading us through that very exciting discussion about the faults of forensics. And I do hope that our listeners continue this discussion, both in the comments with the upcoming posts, as well as just reaching out to us, email us, comment, send us a message, whatever. We would love to hear from you. And also, Nicole, I want to thank you for starting us off this episode with the case study of the Rembard twins and also some other really cool ones that I had never heard of. I'd briefly heard of the Rembard twins. I'd never heard of the other ones, but they were all super neat. And I didn't realize there were so many cases of twins committing crime. And I just think that's really fun. Not in a good way, because obviously, you know, crime's not fun. But yeah. So with all that being said, thank you both for giving us such great lively discussions today. Um, the next topic that we will be speaking about in our next episode is going to be Jeffrey McDonald and crime scene reconstruction, which I'm really excited about. Crime scene reconstruction is a really cool topic that it just... I think it's a dream job for most people that go into forensics, honestly. So, <laughs> Journey, would you like to tell us where people can find us today? Sure. So, people can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WT Forensics PC. And our, um, our website is whattheforensics.ca, your one-stop shop for everything forensics. And our email is whattheforensics at gmail.com if you want to send us any questions, comments, or concerns. Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, that has been another episode of What the Forensics. We all really hope you enjoyed listening to it and uh, following along on our discussion. And we hope to see you next time. Bye. Bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm-hmm.